0: Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast, Lunatics Library Edition, spooky stories for you today. I'm Abby Brinker, sitting here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And today we present for you Jekyll and Hyde themed stories.
1: You know, it's kind of hard to imagine what a story about Jekyll and Hyde would be.
0: Perhaps a little work called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, those, those. By guess, Robert so. Louis Stevenson.
1: Or Robert Louis Stevenson.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, by, by the way, did we, I don't know if we talked about this on the main episode, but my first introduction to Robert Louis Stevenson was not through any of his works, it was through the game Time Splitters.
0: No, you didn't. You did not mention that.
1: Well, the time splitters is an amazing game. Uh, it it was back in the PS2 days. Uh, you a bunch of friends get together, play first person shooter, uh, but you make custom maps, it was great. But one of the main draws of this game, yeah, was it had like 10 billion characters, and one of the characters starting in either the second, I think the second game, maybe the third, if I'm getting it's been a while. Is Robot Lewis Stevenson, who's like this little steampunk robot that would run around and shoot people,
0: and it was just the author.
1: No, it's just a little robot, but it was a play on words.
0: Oh, oh, I see.
1: Yeah, Robot Lewis Stevenson.
0: Very oh, cute. What a guy! <laughs> there you go.
1: I really hope they bring Time Splitters back.
0: <laughs> we'll put in a good word for you with I mean, the big guy.
1: I mean, they're they're they've been making a remake for many years, but it's you know it's a fan project, so who knows? Sure. That's what you wanted to talk about in this episode, right?
0: It's what the fans wanted to hear, you know?
1: So, someone Who out, cares what I want? <laughs> someone out there is like, yeah, time splitters, fuck yeah.
0: So for the rest of us who are not familiar with time splitters, not only do we have an original short story written on this theme, which we're super excited to share, we also, as we teased out last week, have two chapters from the original Jekyll and Hyde work by Stevenson that our dear friend John Cook recorded and he's going to release the whole thing on his podcast so if you still haven't read the original book and you keep hearing us talk about it on october 30th you can go to the Fido podcast and for free listen to it in its entirety which just makes it super accessible for anybody that hasn't read it yet and of course really spooky for halloween
1: it's a it's a pretty good halloween book
0: yeah and short
1: so for this original piece like when you were putting out the request for stories Yes. Uh, What were the stipulations? Like, did it it have to have Jekyll and Hyde? Did it have to have, like, somebody transforming into somebody else? Like, what's the deal?
0: Yeah, I think I said Jekyll and Hyde theme. Obviously, like, you know, dual personality, things like things that are within the realm. It doesn't need to be a retelling of the exact Jekyll and Hyde story. But, you know, you're familiar with the twist, and that's something to play
1: with. I am familiar with the twist. You're familiar with The twist is that they're the same person. Sorry for the spoilers.
0: Well, you've already spoiled it last week. Sorry to to anyone who didn't catch that last week when Alan said the same thing.
1: That's true. I'm sorry.
0: Quickly too, I want to mention we thanks to some fun Discord discussion we've had on the Lunatics Discord server this week, we decided to start an October challenge, I would say, where we have the we have a running sheet where everybody is tracking anybody who wants to participate. Tracking all of the horror and Halloween themed movies that they're watching this month, in in honor system, and whoever wins will get a fun surprise from us.
1: Oh, okay. I was about to say like it wasn't supposed to be a competition. It was just supposed to be like everyone fun tracking movies, but then it got
0: I turned it into a competition. It got
1: really competitive. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're cranking away and watching these movies, which is a lot of fun.
0: So right before we are recording this, we. Actually sat down, had a lovely fall-themed dinner because that's when I really come alive as a chef is in the autumn. Quite
1: the uh, autumnal harvest you put
0: together. (laughs) We had some squash dishes and we put on a random horror movie that we watched on Hulu. We, like, fought about which random horror movie to watch for several minutes. And we picked one called Shortcut. And we're about halfway through. We had to pause to record. But it's just fun for that. You know, it's, like, inspiring to – we know which ones we're going to hit this month. You know, we're, we're always going to hit Halloween and the classics. But it's kind of fun to, like, throw in some random horror movies this month because there's kind of this, like, background challenge. I feel like we're going to see a lot of stuff that we wouldn't normally
1: see. Honestly, watching movies blind is one of my favorite things. When you yeah. know absolutely nothing about it, you make your decision solely on either the name or the cover art. And sometimes you don't even get the cover art. Someone's like name, cool, let's do it.
0: Yeah, we when we were browsing before, there was one I I wanted to watch. I just felt called to it. And you were like, "What makes you want to watch this?" And I feel like I couldn't really answer it. But there is something about cover art that like appeals to it, like makes me feel like oh. I have a sense of what kind of scary this is going to be, you know?
1: Yeah, this one, the whole cover art was an old bus driving.
0: Yeah, we felt like it was safe, but it turned out to be kind of creepy.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, who knows? We're we're halfway through. We're really putting the cart before the horse here. (laughs) But people don't care about what may or may not be. They care about Jekyll and Hyde stories. They
0: care about what is. Anyway, if you want to join the challenge, reach out, let us know, and we'll get you added to the tracker. But... Let's get on to today's feature presentation, shall we?
1: All right, here we go.
0: Kicking us off today, we have a returning writer, one of our favorite authors, Eve S. Evans. She's a very prolific writer. She's an incredible writer. We absolutely love anytime she gets in contact with us and you know, graces us with one of her stories. So I just want to also mention quickly, if you like her work as much as we do, you can check out her latest thriller on Amazon, Beneath the Water. She also has some, I was looking at her, her Amazon page, so many books, and they all look super interesting. They have, speaking of cover art, very compelling cover art. There's also some like compendiums of ghost stories that she's worked on. So check her out on Amazon. You can also check her out on Instagram at Eve S. Evans, Author. And I'm going to stop there and let the story speak for itself.
1: I'm very excited. Here we go. New Girl, written by S. Evans, read by
2: Sarah Luke. Elle checked the time on her phone and grimaced, cursing softly under her breath. She had to get to work. Setting down the box she just finished unpacking, she hurriedly dragged a comb through her hair and slipped on a jacket, grabbing her keys and purse from the side. Behind her, the apartment was still in a state of disarray piles of unpacked boxes and torn bubble wrap. She'd wish she had a little bit more time to get settled in before she started back at work, but her boss had refused to give her more than a couple of days. Locking her apartment behind her, Elle was about to head down the stairs when the door beside hers opened and an older woman hobbled out. "Ah, hello,' she said brightly. "'I've been meaning to come and introduce myself.' Not wanting to appear rude, Elle smiled, trying not to let her foot bounce impatiently. "'I'm Susan, your new neighbor.' Elle, it's nice to meet you. Susan tucked a strand of gray hair behind her ears, resting a hand against the stairs' protruding banister. Let me know if you ever need anything. And I'm sorry for the ruckus last night. I hope it didn't put you off staying here. We don't usually have any trouble. Elle furled her brow. Ruckus? I didn't hear anything. Maybe I slept through it. My, I'm surprised anyone could have slept through it, Susan said with an uneasy smile. All those police sirens, investigators coming in and out. Elle's breath fell short. I'm sorry? What exactly happened? Susan's expression flashed in surprise. Didn't you hear? The man downstairs was murdered last night in his apartment, both him and his dog. Elle put a hand over her mouth, her stomach tightening. I had no idea, she said. That's horrible. Susan lowered her eyes. Yes, well, just be careful and keep your doors locked, at least until they find out who was responsible. I will do, Elle said, nodding. I need to head to work. Of course, don't let me keep you. Susan gave her another smile and Elle jogged down the stairs, her mind spinning. A man with a dog. She found herself thinking back to yesterday morning when she just moved in. She'd been carrying the last of the boxes up the stairs when she encountered a man with his dog. She vaguely remembered him calling the dog Jax, but she couldn't be sure. He'd been ahead of her on the stairs and had let the door at the top slam shut in her face instead of holding it open for her, despite her having an armful of boxes to carry. She'd almost lost her footing and tumbled backwards as a result, and the whole incident had soured her morning. Was that the same man, or was there more than one canine resident here? Either way, as long as that was the last of the gruesome business, she was hopeful she could settle here just fine. After work that night, Elle was too exhausted to take the stairs up to her apartment, so she hit the button to call down the elevator instead. While the complex was generally clean and well-kept, there was a faint veneer of dust and grime in the corners and along the skirting that she noticed while she was waiting in the lobby. The elevator arrived with a cacophony of creaks and groans, and Elle shifted her feet as the doors finally slid open. Two figures were already inside, neither of whom she recognized. A man wearing a suit, his tie sitting askew and a bright lipstick smudge sitting on his cheek, and a woman with curly blonde hair. The woman brazenly adjusted her dress, barely sparing Ella a glance as she walked out of the elevator throwing her hair over her shoulder. She glanced back once to throw the man a wink before disappearing through the front doors. At the same time, another woman passed into the complex and the man inside the elevator straightened his tie, hastily wiping a hand over his cheek to clear away the lipstick stain. The woman offered Elle a faint smile as the two of them stepped into the elevator together. "'Oh, you just got back, too?' she said to the man, kissing him on the lips. He nodded, massaging her shoulders gently. Elle could tell he was trying to avoid her gaze after what she'd just witnessed. She turned away from them, clenching her jaw and keeping quiet. The woman seemed unaware of the tension inside the elevator as Elle shifted her feet, watching the buttons light up as they passed each floor. As soon as they reached the third floor, Elle bustled out before the other two, hearing them step out behind her. That meant the two of them must be her neighbors on the other side. She slipped into her apartment before they could say anything to her. She wasn't sure she'd be able to stay quiet after seeing the man so blatantly cheat on his wife. It wasn't her business anyway. The following morning, Elle switched on the news as she was brushing her teeth getting ready for work. She'd been kept awake most of the night listening to sirens screech through the city, and after staring at the ceiling until the early hours of the morning, she'd finally decided to just get up. A breaking news broadcast flagged up on the screen, and she almost choked on her toothpaste. Brutal murder in Holbrook. She turned the volume up, listening to the news anchor's report. A woman was found in the early hours of this morning brutally strangled in an alleyway near Holbrook City Square. Officers have yet to release the identity of the woman, but are calling for any potential witnesses who were in the area between the hours of 2 to 5 a.m. Elle shook her head, leaving the television playing in the background as she went to spit out her toothpaste. Another murder? She'd moved to Holbrook thinking it would be the perfect place for a new start, somewhere she could learn to be happy. But these murders completely threatened the peace and safety she'd been coveting. Was there a serial killer in the city, or were these two events completely unrelated? The thought made her shudder. Holbrook City Square wasn't that far from the apartment complex either, which meant the killer must have been operating somewhere close to the area. Did that put her and any of the other tenants at risk? Maybe she should stop by the hardware store on her way home from work to buy an extra lock for her front door. Surely it was better to take precautions rather than put herself at any unnecessary risk. She switched the television off and grabbed her keys before stepping out of the apartment. Before she could lock it behind her, a figure appeared on her left, startling her. She threw up her hands in a defensive pose, her heart hammering inside her chest. "'It's just me, dear,' Susan said, stepping out of her reach. "'Oh, Susan, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize—' The older woman nodding in understanding. "'I take it you heard the news,' she said. "'Such a horrible tragedy!' Elle sighed, tucking a strand of hair behind her ear. "'I know. I'm starting to question if it was a good idea moving here,' she said honestly. "'Oh, don't think like that,' Susan said gently, reaching out and patting her arm. "'As long as us ladies look out for each other, we'll be fine.' Elle allowed her tension to ease away, and she offered her neighbor a smile. "'Yes, of course.' "'I just baked some fresh cookies,' Susan said, her eyes twinkling. "'Would you like to come in and have one?' Elle checked the time. I'd love to, but I need to get to work. Maybe another time? Susan nodded, then held up a hand for Elle to wait. She disappeared inside her apartment, then returned a moment later with a plate covered in tinfoil. Take them for later, then. I made far too many for just myself. Elle accepted the plate with a grateful smile. Thank you. That's very kind. The woman hobbled back inside and closed the door behind her the lock sliding into place with a metallic thunk. With a soft sigh, Elle quickly deposited the plate of cookies on her kitchen counter before heading back out. Dusk was already beginning to fall by the time Elle started cooking dinner that night. She'd had to stay late at work, and between a sleepless night and the shock of the murders, she was struggling to keep her eyes open. She might have fallen asleep on the spot if not for the racket next door. As she waited for the pasta to boil in the pan, she gritted her teeth at the heavy thud of bass vibrating through the walls. The music had been blasting since she'd let herself into the apartment, and she'd hoped her neighbor would have turned it off by now out of consideration for everyone else inside the apartment complex. But apparently, she'd been wrong. She was certain the man was there alone, since it didn't seem like his wife would have let him act so selfishly. She switched on the television and turned the volume up to try and drown out the pulsing beat as she ate her food. But the sound was starting to get under her skin, making her ears ring. With a frustrated sigh she set down her bowl of half-eaten spaghetti and climbed off the sofa. She was certain other people in the apartment must be able to hear the music, but it seemed nobody was willing to do something about it. Leaving her apartment, she stood outside her neighbor's door and raised a fist to knock. That's when she noticed the door was already open, a sliver of a crack holding it ajar. She frowned, tapping her knuckles against the wood. "'Excuse me?' she called, not knowing her neighbor's name is anyone there? When she received no answer, she knocked harder on the door. It creaked open beneath her touch, spilling music out into the corridor. She didn't want to intrude, but it was obvious he wasn't able to hear her. She pushed the door open wider, peering through. The curtains inside had been drawn shut, basking the room in a hazy gloom. Tiny red and white lights flickered from a CD player that was blasting the music. But other than that... The only source of light was a thin sliver of yellow bleeding out from the door on the right. Hello? Elle called again. Anyone home? An unsettling sense of dread began to creep over her when she received no reply. Where was the apartment's tenants? Why had they left the music on so loud? She stepped inside, reaching for the light switch. She didn't want to catch anyone off guard by intruding in the darkness. The light filtered on, revealing the empty front room. With nobody to confront her, she marched over to the CD player and switched the music off. But the silence that followed wasn't as relieving as she'd hoped. It only seemed to increase the eeriness of the empty apartment. Eager to get out of there, she headed back towards the door when something made her stop. A smell, dark and unpleasant. Something familiar that she couldn't quite place. She found herself turning towards the door on her right where she'd seen the light seeping through. Holding her breath she listened. Plink. Blink Blink. Water? She frowned. Something didn't feel right. Before she knew what she was doing, she stepped up to the door and tapped her fingers against it. Excuse me? Is someone in there? she called. Plink. She could definitely hear water. But that wasn't all. That strange smell seemed to be emanating from within, too. Despite the feeling of dread that had wrenched in her gut, Elle reached for the handle and inched the door open. Warm eddies of steam immediately billowed out, accompanied by that horrible smell that made Elle blanch. What the hell was it? I'm coming in, she said to nobody in particular as she stepped over a crumpled pile of clothes sitting near the door, padding into the room. A scream immediately got caught in her throat as she saw the scene before her. A man was lying in the bathtub. Steam was still rising from the surface, but it wasn't enough to obscure the deep gash in his throat or the bloated clamminess of his skin or the deep crimson color of the water. Bile tore up Elle's throat and she turned and vomited into the sink, nausea twisting her stomach into knots. She threw up until there was nothing left in her stomach, then wiped her mouth with the back of her hand. Her mind spinning, she dragged herself out of the bathroom and ran back to her apartment, fumbling to call 911 on her mobile. After she'd explained everything to the operator, she stumbled into her bathroom, still feeling dizzy with shock. She twisted on the faucet and waited for the water to run cold before splashing it against her face, trying to coax some color back into her cheeks. What the hell was going on in this city? That made three murders since she'd moved here, two of which happened in the very apartment complex she was now living in. It was like something out of a nightmare. She no longer felt safe here. With a shaky sigh, she toweled her face dry, listening to the sirens approaching the apartment in the distance. As soon as this horrible business was dealt with, she was going to start looking for a new place to live. She couldn't stay here anymore. Not with a killer on the loose. As she was reaching to switch the light back off, something caught her eye, making her freeze. A flicker of ash and crimson sitting amongst the crumpled tissues in the trash can. She turned, struggling to comprehend what she was seeing beneath the bright fluorescence. A black tie, splattered with dark red blood. But why the hell would something like that be sitting in her bathroom trash bin? Then it struck her and she felt the floor almost give way beneath her feet. That tie. It was the exact same one that the man in the elevator had been wearing. The man who was now laying in his bathtub with his throat slit.
0: That story left me with shivers along my spine.
1: I I do like the twist. Despite knowing the twist of Jekyll and Hyde, I didn't see this coming.
0: Right? How successful was it? Well I thought done. it was great. Well
1: done. Yeah. That's a terrible thing. I mean, it's it's horrific to find any kind of murder, you know. In, oh my God, in, terrible. In, in the place that you live. Yes. Uh, and, but then like the, the duality of, is this me? Oh my God, this is me. How can this be me?
0: Have you ever seen the film version of Chicago the Musical? Yes. Do you remember the opening sequence with Catherine Zeta-Jones?
1: Yeah, Mr. (laughs) Sylphane.
0: No, it starts with a song called All That Jazz. And anyway, the point is she has this like moment where she says she blacked out, but she like kills uh, her sister, I think, and her husband because they're having he's cheating with her sister But it it has this moment where she's like washing the blood off her hands in the sink. Oh, I remember that. You do? Yeah. So it kind of like had that kind of like moment. Like that's what it called to my brain a little bit. But obviously not like a quirky musical version, more like a a horror version.
1: I I liked Eve's version a lot more.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Eve is, as we've said before, excellent. I would highly encourage you, especially this time of year, to check out, again, all of her books on Amazon. This is I mean, for us horror is all year round, but if you're looking to get into something extra spooky this month, Eve S Evans on Amazon and of course we'll we'll link it in the description. And of course, as literally always, our friend Sarah Luke did an amazing job. If you're not following her already somehow, which would be surprising to me since we we are so integrated into each other's creative lives, but follow her on Instagram, Sarah Sarah Luke 25.
1: Yeah, as always, she did a great job.
0: We have some major collaborations coming up with her, which, you know, we, we shan't mention yet, but.
1: Yeah, they're secret.
0: They're secret. (laughs) So that was a super modern, fun take on Jekyll and Hyde. Shall we now revert to the original material?
1: Speaking of original material. Okay. I did my homework. Ah, I watched the original universal version of Jekyll and Hyde.
0: Very good. The,
1: un, the uncut version.
0: Oh, unabridged?
1: I mean, I don't know. Just like you said they had to like cut out nine minutes. Oh, right, right, right.
0: Yeah. You watched the original.
1: I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I Googled and this was from the internet archive. So I assume this was the original.
0: Was it racy?
1: Uh, I was actually very unprepared for <laughs> this version of Jekyll and Hyde. They took Hyde in a direction that I that made him far more unsavory than literally any other incarnation we've encountered so far.
0: What do you mean? Tell us more.
1: Uh, he gets rapey. Oh,
0: yikes! Trigger warning, content warning.
1: Yeah, so when Jekyll turns like when he turns into Hyde, first yeah. off, he looks hideous, like really hideous. Uh, he looks like, um, like half man, half monkey almost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing the
1: imagery of it. And like, it's honestly, like if you're going to make somebody like super evil, like, yeah, make him look creepy and ooh. Ver- you know, again, I'm, I'm, I keep thinking of the, not the Christopher Walken. John Malkovich. Thank you. The John Malkovich version where it's just like him, but with long hair. Uh, and in this it's like, no, this is a totally different person, right?
0: Like there's an actual transformation Mm
1: -hmm. might've been the same actor. I'm not sure,
0: but they actually use like makeup and special effects or practical effects.
1: Absolutely. And And he moves completely differently. He becomes, uh, actually it's as the, um, I was going to say the disease, but as the transformation progresses, because every time, you know, so he loses as just in the novel, he loses control of his transformations. Yeah. At the end, when he's like being pursued, it's almost like he can he starts transforming further into this animal and into, into this type of animal. You know, he goes from like a warped gentleman right to a beast wow. that is like jumping around with acrobatics and climbing on shit,
0: like split kind of.
1: Yeah, in a bit, a bit, yeah. I would nothing like supernatural per se sure uh but he was really really creepy and with again he his main thing was like he took whatever he wanted and you know that included like just giving in to all of all of his vices sure and, and so yeah there's the they, there's the, the plot was very different from the movie and i got to say this was probably one of the most engaging Original Universal movies. Oh, wow. I've encountered so far.
0: Damn. Well, that's great to know. It's
1: like, I mean, it's got a slow start. Sure. Also, I really wasn't expecting much. Yeah. But by the end, I'm just like, really, just like, I'm I'm along for the ride.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, that's good to know. Also, I had this strange thought while you were talking, and I I don't know if you're going to agree or disagree with this, but do you remember when we watched, this was last year, the James Wan film Malignant?
1: Oh yeah. Great movie. Now
0: I know that that's spoiler alert on Malignant. So if you haven't seen it, skip ahead a few minutes. I know the twist at the end of Malignant is that it was kind of this twin, right? This like dermoid cyst turned into twin, Mm -hmm. but it was really like she had to master it within her own brain. And what I was thinking, because remember like the, when this like evil version of herself or twin was in control, she had all this like special, like she could kind of scale walls and do things like that too. So I know it's not one-to-one because it's kind of like two different people that share one body versus two personalities. Sure. But it kind of had that same internal struggle of having to like master it in some way and control it and also having that like good and evil housed within one body. So I know it's not one-to-one, but I just thought of it and realized we hadn't talked about it.
1: Yeah. In the universal Jekyll and Hyde, there is no... Mastering. It just it's yeah. it just is. It's a it's a car on the freeway without a steering wheel. Right. Um, and like there there's one really cool scene where a guy holds Hyde at gunpoint, someone who has procured more formula for uh Dr. Jekyll, Hyde goes to pick it up mm. and then When Hyde goes to take it, the guy holds Hyde at gunpoint and says, uh, you know, what have you done with Dr. Jekyll? I'm very nervous about, I'm very nervous for him. Yeah. I don't trust you one bit. And, you know, Hyde is just like pleading in in like a very nervous breakdown, like a junkie needing his fix way uh, to just let him get out of here. Jekyll will come visit him in the morning, he promises. The guy's like, no, I don't trust you uh, one bit. I will follow you to Jekyll Mm -hmm. um, so that you can deliver him his thing if he is as well as you claim. And there's this back and forth where he's trying to convince him just to go. And then he just like snaps and says, fine, you want, you want, you want Jekyll, here you go. And then basically he's forced to take the formula at gunpoint to turn back into Jekyll. Wow. And like, obviously that blows the guy's mind. Yeah. And then Jekyll's like, well, shit. Yeah. I'm like (laughs) trapped with this piece of shit in me. Right. It's just, it's a cool movie. And it's, it's has, it just hits a lot of notes that the original book didn't. Right. If you're like very rarely are these reinterpretations better than the source material. Yeah. Uh, But I resonated with much more, it was much more, much, much more entertaining, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, we talked about how much we like the original, but it is a book from the 1800s. You know, it is what it is. We are a modern audience.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's okay.
0: Right. I mean this is st- still this universal film it's from 1931 so it's one of the first universal monster oh, wow. films. That's a good point. It's not like, you know, Creature which is in the 50s, it's in 1931 it's barely like has sound.
1: <laughs> also, um oh yeah, and the the production value is like great. Yeah. Like they they did lots of um, practical effects, lots of camera tricks and stuff. I I don't know if it was just the copy I was watching on the Internet Archive or not, but there was like a a glowing spot in the middle of the frame. Mm. And that could have just been like inherent of the cameras of the day uh, or the films or whatever. I want to say that this was deliberate Mm. because they kept using it in such a creepy way, like the character's face would be in the hot spot. Interesting and just like seeing Hyde's face, just like kind of illuminated in like a dark alley. When but that and that's simply just like the the camera doing that, right? It was it's cool.
0: Yeah, that is cool. It's interesting. Or I could I wonder if it was just like a technical limitation of the camera that they like accepted and played into. You know,
1: I mean, just this is me just spitballing here, but you know, old lenses vignette like crazy. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, but but this is more pronounced than I've seen. Like I'm thinking of like the great train robbery didn't have this bad. Right. But anyways, uh, we're, we're getting sidetracked. Yeah. We've teased John's rendition of Jekyll and Hyde long enough.
0: Far too long.
1: And while I found the source material maybe not quite as engaging as the universal film, it's still such a fun read. And just like, it's one of those things you just should check off your list.
0: Absolutely. And of course, John brings new life to it, right? New energy to it. And this is yet another tease, really, because this is chapter one and two. And again, there's 10 chapters in the book. So head over to Fado on October 30th for the entirety of the saga. But without further ado.
1: Well, slightly more ado. Okay. After listening to this, you will have gotten through 20% of the chapters. Yeah. Might as well finish it out. Might as well. Head over to Fado.
2: Head
0: over to Fidel. Okay, now, without further ado, let's roll the tape. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll
3: and Mr. Hyde. Written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Read by John C. Cook. Story of the Door. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of a rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile, cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in these silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone to mortify a taste for vintages, and, though he enjoyed the theatre, had not crossed the doors of one for twenty years. But he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove, "'I incline to Cain's heresy,' he used to say quaintly. "'I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. "'In this character it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance "'and the last good influence in the lives of downgoing men. "'And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, "'he never marked a shade of change in his demeanour. "'No doubt the feat was easy to Mr. Utterson, for he was undemonstrative at the best.' and even his friendship seemed to be founded in a similar catholicity of good nature. It is the mark of a modest man to accept his friendly circle ready-made from the hands of opportunity, and that was the lawyer's way. His friends were those of his own blood, or those whom he had known the longest. His affections, like ivy, were the growth of time. They implied no aptness in the object." hence no doubt the bond that united him to Mr. Richard Enfield, his distant kinsman, the well-known man about town. It was a nut to crack for many what these two could see in each other, or what subject they could find in common. It was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks that they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. For all that, the two men put the greatest store by these excursions— counted them the chief jewel of each week, and not only set aside occasions of pleasure, but even resisted the calls of business that they might enjoy them uninterrupted. It chanced on one of these rambles that their way led them down a by-street in a busy quarter of London. The street was small and what is called quiet, but it drove a thriving trade on the weekdays— the inhabitants were all doing well, it seemed, and all emulously hoping to do better still, and laying out the surplus of their grains in coquetry, so that the fronts stood along the thoroughfare with an air of invitation like rows of smiling saleswomen. Even on Sunday, when it veiled its more florid charms and lay comparatively empty of passage, the street shone out in contrast to its dingy neighbourhood, like a fire in a forest, and with its freshly painted shutters, well-polished brasses, and general cleanliness and gaiety of note, instantly caught and pleased the eye of the passenger. Two doors from one corner, on the left hand going east, the line was broken by the entry of a court, and just at that point a certain sinister block of building thrust forward its gable on the street. It was two stories high, showed no window, Nothing but a door on the lower story and a blind forehead of discolored wall on the upper, and bore in every feature the marks of prolonged and sordid negligence. The door, which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker, was blistered and disdained. Tramps slouched into the recesses and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shop upon the steps. The schoolboy had tried his knife on the moldings and for close on a generation no one had appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages. Mr. Enfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by-street, but when they came abreast of the entry, the former lifted up his cane and pointed. "'Did you ever remark that door?' he asked, and when his companion had replied in the affirmative, "'It is connected in my mind,' added he, "'with a very odd story.' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Utterson, with a slight change of voice. "'And what was that?' "'Well, it was this way,' returned Mr. Enfield. "'I was coming home from some place at the end of the world, about three o'clock of a black winter morning, and my way lay through a part of town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps. Street after street, and all the folks asleep, street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, and all as empty as a church.' Till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens, and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another naturally enough at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing for the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man, it was like some damned juggernaut. I gave a few hello, took to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but gave me one look, so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running." the people who had turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor for whom she had been sent put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to the sawbones, and there you might have supposed would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight, so had the child's family, which was only natural. But the doctor's case was what struck me, He was the usual cut-and-dry apothecary of no particular age and color, with a strong Edinburgh accent and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that sawbones turn sick and white with the desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind, just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question, we did the next best.' We told the man that we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we undertook that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching it in red-hot, we were keeping the women off of him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces, and there was the man in the middle with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened, too, I could see that carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. "'If you choose to make a capital out of this accident,' said he, "'I'm naturally helpless. No gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene,' says he. "'Name your figure.' Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds for the child's family. He would have clearly liked to stick out, but there was something about the lot of us that meant mischief, and at last he struck. "'The next thing was to get the money, and where do you think he carried us but to that place with the door?' whipped out a key went in and presently came back with the matter of 10 pounds in gold and a check for the balance on kootzes drawn payable to bearer and signed with a name that i can't mention though it's one of the points of my story but it was a name at the very least well known and often printed the figure was stiff but the signature was good for more than that if it was only genuine I took the liberty of pointing out to my gentleman that the whole business looked apocryphal, and that a man does not, in real life, walk into a cellar door at four in the morning and come out with another man's cheque for close upon a hundred pounds. But he was quite easy in sneering. "'Set your mind at ease,' says he. "'I will stay with you till the banks open and cash the cheque myself.' So we all set off, the doctor and the child's father and our friend and myself, and passed the rest of the night in my chambers.' and next day, when we had breakfasted, went in a body to the bank. I gave in the check myself, and said I had every reason to believe it was a forgery. Not a bit of it. The check was genuine. "'Tut, tut,' said Mr. Utterson. "'I see you feel as I do,' said Mr. Enfield. "'Yes, it's a bad story, for my man was a fellow that nobody could have to do with, a really damnable man, and the person that drew the check is the very pink of the proprieties, celebrated too.' And, what makes it worse, one of your fellows who do what they call good. Blackmail, I suppose, an honest man paying through the nose for some of the capers of his youth. Blackmail house is what I call the place with the door, in consequence. Though even that, you know, is far from explaining all, he added, and then, with the words, fell into a vein of musing. From this he was recalled by Mr. Utterson, asking rather suddenly, "'And you don't know if the drawer of the check lives here?' "'A likely place, isn't it?' returned Mr. Enfield. "'But I happen to have noticed his address. "'He lives in some square or other.' "'And you never asked about the place with the door?' said Mr. Utterson. "'No, sir, I had a delicacy,' was the reply. "'I feel very strongly about putting questions. "'It partakes too much of the style of the Day of Judgment. "'You start a question, and it's like starting a stone. "'You sit quietly on the top of a hill, and away the stone goes, starting others.' and presently some bland old bird, the last you would have thought of, is knocked on the head in his own back garden, and the family have to change their name. No, sir, I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like Queer Street, the less I talk. A very good rule, too, said the lawyer. But I have studied the place for myself, continued Mr. Enfield. It seems scarcely a house. There is no other door, and nobody goes in or out of that one but, once in a while, the gentleman of my adventure.' There are three windows looking out on the court on the first floor, none below. The windows are always shut, but they're clean. And then there is a chimney which is generally smoking, so somebody must live there. And yet it's not so sure, for the buildings are so packed together about the court, that it's hard to say where one ends and another begins. The pair walked on again for a while in silence, and then... "'Enfield,' said Mr. Utterson, "'that's a good rule of yours.' "'Yes, I think it is,' returned Enfield. "'But for all that,' continued the lawyer, "'there's one point I want to ask. "'I want to ask the name of that man who walked over the child.' "'Well,' said Mr. Enfield, "'I can't see what harm it would do. "'It was a man of the name of Hyde.' Hm," said Mr. Utterson. "'What sort of man is he to see?' "'He is not easy to describe. "'There is something wrong with his appearance, "'something displeasing, "'something downright detestable.' I never saw a man I so disliked, and yet I scarce know why. He must be deformed somewhere. He gives a strong feeling of deformity, although I couldn't specify the point. He's an extraordinary-looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir, I can make no hand of it. I can't describe him. And it's not want of memory, for I declare I can see him in this moment.' Mr. Utterson again walked some way in silence, and obviously under a weight of consideration. "'You're sure he used a key?' he inquired at last. "'My dear sir,' began Enfield, surprised out of himself. "'Yes, I know,' said Utterson. "'I know it must seem strange. "'The fact is, if I do not ask you the name of the other party, it is because I know it already. "'You see, Richard, your tale has gone home. "'If you have been inexact in any point, you had better correct it.' "I think you might have warned me," returned the other with a touch of sullenness, "but I have been pedantically exact, as you call it. The fellow had a key, and what's more, he has it still. I saw him use it not a week ago." mr Utterson sighed deeply, but said never a word, and the young man presently resumed. "Here is another lesson to say nothing," said he. "I am ashamed of my long tongue. Let us make a bargain never to refer to this again." "With all my heart," said the lawyer. I shake hands on that, Richard. THE SEARCH FOR MR. HYDE That evening Mr. Utterson came home to his bachelor house in somber spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday, when this meal was over, to sit close by the fire, a volume of some dry divinity on his reading desk, until the clock of the neighbouring church rang out the hour of twelve, when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. On this night, however, as soon as the cloth was taken away, he took up a candle and went into his business room. There he opened his safe, took from the most private part of it a document endorsed on the envelope as Dr. Jekyll's will, and sat down with a clouded brow to study its contents. The will was holograph, for Mr. Utterson, though he took charge of it now that it was made, had refused to lend the least assistance in the making of it. It provided not only that, in the case of the decease of Henry Jekyll, M.D., D.C.L., L.L.D., F.R.S., etc., all his possessions were to pass into the hands of his friend and benefactor Edward Hyde, but that in case of Dr. Jekyll's disappearance or unexplained absence for any period exceeding three calendar months— the said Edward Hyde should step into the said Henry Jekyll's shoes without further delay and free from any burthen or obligation beyond the payment of a few small sums to the members of the doctor's household. This document had long been the lawyer's eyesore. It offended him both as a lawyer and as a lover of the sane and customary sides of life, to whom the fanciful was the immodest. And hitherto it was his ignorance of Mr. Hyde that had swelled his indignation— Now, by a sudden turn, it was his knowledge. It was already bad enough when the name was but a name of which he could learn no more. It was worse when it began to be clothed upon with detestable attributes, and out of the shifting, insubstantial mists that had so long baffled his eye, there leapt up the sudden, definite presentment of a fiend. I thought it was madness, he said, as he replaced the obnoxious paper in the safe, and now I begin to fear it is disgrace— With that he blew out his candle, put on a greatcoat, and set forth in the direction of Cavendish Square, that citadel of medicine, where his friend, the great Dr. Lanyon, had his house and received his crowding patients. If anyone knows, it will be Lanyon, he had thought. The solemn butler knew and welcomed him. He was subjected to no stage of delay, but ushered direct from the door to the dining room where Dr. Lanyon sat alone over his wine. This was a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman, with a shock of hair prematurely white, and a boisterous and decided manner. At the sight of Mr. Utterson he sprang up from his chair and welcomed him with both hands. The geniality, as was the way of the man, was somewhat theatrical to the eye, but it reposed on genuine feeling. For these two were old friends, old mates both at school and college, both thorough respecters of themselves and of each other and what does not always follow, men who thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. After a little rambling talk, the lawyer led up to the subject which so disagreeably preoccupied his mind. "'I suppose, Lanyon,' said he, "'you and I must be the two oldest friends that Harry Jekyll has. I wish the friends were younger,' chuckled Dr. Lanyon. "'But I suppose we are. And what of that? I see little of him now.' "'Indeed,' said Utterson. "'I thought you had a bond of common interest.' We had, was the reply, but it is more than ten years since Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong, wrong in mind, and though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him for old sakes' sake, as they say, I see and I have seen devilish little of the man. Such unscientific balderdash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple, would have estranged Damon and Pythias. This little spirit of temper was somewhat of a relief to Mr. Utterson, They have only differed on some point of science, he thought, and being a man of no scientific passions, except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, "'Is it nothing worse than that?' He gave his friend a few seconds to recover his composure, and then approached the question he had come to put. "'Did you ever come across a protege of his? One Hyde?' he asked. "'Hyde?' repeated Lanyon. "'No, never heard of him since my time.' That was the amount of information that the lawyer carried back with him to the great, dark bed on which he tossed to and fro, until the small hours of the morning began to grow large. It was a night of little ease to his toiling mind, toiling in mere darkness and besieged by questions. Six o'clock struck on the bells of the church that was so conveniently near to Mr. Utterson's dwelling, and he was still digging at the problem. Hitherto it had touched him on the intellectual side alone, and now his imagination was also engaged, or rather enslaved. And as he lay and tossed in the gross darkness of the night and the curtained room, Mr. Enfield's tale went by before his mind in a scroll of lighted pictures. He would be aware of the great field of lamps of a nocturnal city, then of the figure of a man walking swiftly, then of a child running from the doctor's and then these met, and that human juggernaut trod the child down and passed on regardless of her screams. Or else he would see a room in a rich house where his friend lay asleep, dreaming and smiling at his dreams, and then the door of the room would be opened, the curtains of the bed plucked apart, the sleeper recalled, and lo, there would stand by his side a figure to whom power was given, and even at that dead hour he must rise and do its bidding— the figure in these two phases haunted the lawyer all night, and if at any time he dozed over, it was but to see it glide more stealthily through sleeping houses, or move the more swiftly and still the more swiftly even to dizziness through wider labyrinths of lamp lighted city, and at every street corner crush a child and leave her screaming. And still the figure had no face by which he might know it even in his dreams. It had no face, or one that baffled him and melted before his eyes, and and thus it was that there sprang up and grew apace in the lawyer's mind a singularly strong, almost an inordinate curiosity to behold the features of the real Mr. Hyde. If he could but once set eyes on him, he thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away, as was the habit of mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it which you please, and even for the startling clause of the will. At least it would be a face worth seeing, the face of a man who was without bowels of mercy, a face which had but to show itself to raise up in the mind of the unimpressionable Enfield a spirit of enduring hatred. From that time forward, Mr. Utterson began to haunt the door in the by-street of shops. In the morning before office hours, at noon when business was plenty and time scarce, at night under the face of the fogged city moon By all lights, and at all hours of solitude or concourse, the lawyer was found to be on his chosen post. If he shall be Mr. Hyde, he had thought, I shall be Mr. Seek. At the last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine dry night, frost in the air, the streets as clean as a ballroom floor, the lamps unshaken by any wind drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow by ten o'clock when the shops were closed the by-street was very solitary and in spite of the low growl of london from all around very silent small sounds carried far domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway and the rumour of the approach of any passenger preceded him by a long time mr utterson had been some minutes at his post when he was aware of an odd light footstep drawing near In the course of his nightly patrols he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect with which the footfalls of a single person, while he is still a great way off, suddenly spring out distinct from the vast hum and clatter of the city. Yet his attention had never before been so sharply and decisively arrested, and it was with a strong, superstitious provision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court." The steps grew swiftly nearer and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was small and very plainly dressed, and the look of him, even at that distance, went somehow strongly against the watcher's inclination. But he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time, and as he came he drew a key from his pocket like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think. Mr. Hyde shrank back with a hissing intake of the breath, but his fear was only momentary, and though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough, That is my name. What do you want? I see you are going in, returned the lawyer. I'm an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Utterson of Gaunt Street. You must have heard of my name, and meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me." "'You will not find Dr. Jekyll. He is from home,' replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key. And then suddenly, but still without looking up, "'How did you know me?' he asked. "'On your side,' said Mr. Utterson, "'will you do me a favor?" "'With pleasure,' replied the other. "'What shall it be?' "'Will you let me see your face?' asked the lawyer. Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, fronted about with an air of defiance, and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds— "'Now I shall know you again,' said Mr. Utterson. "'It may be useful.' "'Yes,' returned Mr. Hyde. "'It is as well we have met, and, apropos, you should have my address.' And he gave a number of a street in Soho. "'Good God!' thought Mr. Utterson. "'Can he, too, have been thinking of the will?' But he kept his feelings to himself and only grunted in acknowledgment of the address. "'And now,' said the other, "'how did you know me?' "'By description,' was the reply. "'Whose description?' "'We have common friends,' said Mr. Utterson. "'Common friends,' echoed Mr. Hyde a little hoarsely. "'Who are they?' "'Jekyll, for instance,' said the lawyer. "'He never told you,' cried Mr. Hyde with a flush of anger. "'I did not think you would have lied.' "'Come,' said Mr. Utterson. "'That is not fitting language.' The other snarled aloud into a savage laugh, and the next moment, with extraordinary quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared into the house.' The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him, the picture of disquietude. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that is rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish he gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him. "'There must be something else,' said the perplexed gentleman." There is something more, if I could find a name for it. God bless me, the man seems hardly human. Something troglodytic, shall we say? Or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell? Or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? The last, I think. For, oh, my poor Harry Jekyll, if ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend." round the corner from the by-street there was a square of ancient handsome houses now for the most part decayed from their high estate and led in flats and chambers to all sorts and conditions of men map engravers architects shady lawyers and the agents of obscure enterprises One house, however, second from the corner, was still occupied entire, and at the door of this, which wore a great air of wealth and comfort, though it was now plunged in darkness except for the fanlight, Mr. Utterson stopped and knocked. A well dressed elderly servant opened the door. "Is Dr. Jekyll at home, Poole?" asked the lawyer. "'I will see, Mr. Utterson,' said Poole, admitting the visitor as he spoke, into a large, low-roofed, comfortable hall, paved with flags, warmed after a fashion of a country house by a bright, open fire, and furnished with costly cabinets of oak. "'Will you wait here by the fire, sir, or shall I give you a light in the dining-room?' "'Here, thank you,' said the lawyer, and he drew near and leaned on the tall fender." This hall in which he was now left alone was a pet fancy of his friend the doctor's, and Utterson himself was wont to speak of it as the pleasantest room in London. But tonight there was a shudder in his blood. The face of Hyde sat heavy on his memory. He felt, what was rare with him, a nausea and distaste of life, and in the gloom of his spirits he seemed to read a menace in the flickering of the firelight on the polished cabinets and the uneasy starting of the shadow on the roof. He was ashamed of his relief when Poole presently returned to announce that Dr. Jekyll was gone out. "'I saw Mr. Hyde go in by the old dissecting-room, Poole,' he said. "'Is that right, when Dr. Jekyll is from home?' "'Quite right, Mr. Utterson, sir,' replied the servant. "'Mr. Hyde has a key.' "'Your master seems to repose a great deal of trust in that young man, Poole,' resumed the other musingly. "'Yes, sir, he does indeed,' said Poole. "'We have all orders to obey him.' "'I do not think I ever met Mr. Hyde?' asked Utterson. "'Oh, dear, no, sir. He never dines here,' replied the butler. "'Indeed, we see very little of him on this side of the house. "'He mostly comes and goes by the laboratory. "'Well, good night, Poole. Good night, Mr. Utterson.' And the lawyer set out homeward with a very heavy heart. "'Poor Harry Jekyll,' he thought. "'My mind misgives me he is in deep waters.' He was wild when he was young, a long while ago to be sure, but in the law of God there is no statute of limitations. Aye, it must be that, the ghost of some old sin, the cancer of some concealed disgrace. Punishment coming pediclaudo, years after memory has forgotten and self-love condoned the fault. And the lawyer, scared by the thought, brooded awhile on his own past— "'groping in all the corners of memory, lest by chance some jack-in-the-box of an old iniquity should leap to light there. "'His past was fairly blameless. Few men could read the rolls of their life with less apprehension. "'Yet he was humbled to the dust by the many ill things he had done, "'and raised up again into a sober and fearful gratitude by the many he had come so near to doing yet avoided.' And then, by a return on his former subject, he conceived a spark of hope. This master Hyde, if he were studied, thought he, must have secrets of his own. Black secrets by the look of him. Secrets compared to which poor Jekyll's worst would be like sunshine. Things cannot continue as they are. It turns me cold to think of this creature stealing like a thief to Harry's bedside. Poor Harry. What awakening! awakening! And the danger of it, for if this Hyde suspects the existence of the will, he may grow impatient to inherit. Ay, I must put my shoulders to the wheel, if Jekyll will but let me, he added, if Jekyll will only let me. For once more he saw before his mind's eye, as clear as transparency, the strange clauses of the will.
1: I just love...
3: That I got to
1: hear about the child stomping scene from love John. love that scene. I love the child stomping scene. <laughs> um, now, it did finally make more sense to me, though. Okay. Because he talks about Hyde as a juggernaut. Yes. And I think... Yeah, you
0: got caught up on the juggernaut last week. I
1: did, but I'm thinking of juggernaut from X-Men. Yeah. When the real definition of juggernaut is an unstoppable force.
0: Oh, there you go.
1: So like, yeah, he was just running and he barreled through the kid. Yeah. You know, that was, that was it. That is, that's how Utterson was describing the event. And he was not describing Hyde to be a hulking monstrosity.
0: Yeah. One thing I want to mention super quickly as well is that we put a poll out on Instagram this week to see what everybody's favorite versions of Jekyll and Hyde were since we talked about so many last week. And... The Hulk came up, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came up, this British like BBC show for kids called Henrietta Hyde and Julia Jekyll oh. came up, yeah, which which looked kind of interesting. But more so than any other version, which one do you think was the most voted, the most submitted?
1: Did you already list it? No. Because I would say League of Extraordinary Gentlemen.
0: <laughs> the musical. David Hasselhoff musical.
1: Oh jeez. We really got to see this. I
0: know. <laughs> but I mean, anyway,
1: uh, I would love to see the Hoff do this.
0: The Hoff. I didn't realize you had a nickname for him.
1: It's not mine. Oh. It's his. It
0: sounds intimate.
1: I I I cannot speak further on the matter.
0: <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening as always. It's getting closer and closer to Halloween. Every second of every day. We're super super excited. We've been having some fun spooky halloween themed moments this month and i'm very excited but anyway i hope you all stay very safe and of course since it's october stay extra spooky and we'll talk to you next week bye Bye. thanks for listening if you'd like some bonus content consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club.
1: Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel.
0: You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more.
1: And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there.
0: Our cover art is by Pilar Kep, and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.